0: You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economy's editor, Giles Parkinson, and leading energy analyst, David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar Ray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Watches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use.
1: Hello and welcome to this latest edition of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me, um, as usual, is David Leach, ITK analyst. David, welcome back to the podcast, and I hope you had a fine Easter.
2: I had a working Easter, thanks uh, very much, Giles. And I trust uh, you had fun uh, seeing uh, Bob Brown through Byron, if he's got that far yet, and. Uh, uh, we've got our special guest today.
1: Absolutely, yes. Well, look, I saw Iggy Pop on Friday night at the Blues Festival, and Bob Brown at um, at uh, Bimby Showgrounds on Sunday. And um, indeed, we do. Look, we do have a, spe- look, a special. Look, if, if you get to George Christensen in the Philippines, you'll you'll have a perfect trio, probably. The perfect trio, absolutely. Yes, yes. It could, could be could be an idea for a card game. Look. um... We've t- today um, got a really um, uh, a really interesting guest. We haven't heard much in the way of new projects after the last couple of months. The sort of you know new announcements have sort of dried up a little bit because we're reaching the renew- end of the renewable energy target. We seem to have met them all, but um, obviously there's a bit of lingering corporate demand um, still out there. But last week we had what I think is one of the most interesting um, announcements um, of a new a new solar or wind farm in the last couple of months. And it was with Renew Estate and the solar farm was Bowman and this is a long way around of introducing (laughs) Simon Curry, the founder and principal of um, Renew Estate. Um, Simon, welcome to the podcast.
3: Great, thank you very much. It's nice to be here rather than just listening to it
1: yeah well there you go well thanks for joining us look um this solar farm bowman solar farm It's 100 megawatts which doesn't make it the biggest or the newest or the southernmost or easternmost or westernmost or anything like that but it just seems to sort of strike a few interesting points because of the um, nature of the contract and the deal can you just run us a little bit through it through us um some of the key details and, and and why they are important
3: um, sure. So um, it's all about location, uh, location, location. So uh, when we formed a new estate uh, just under uh, just under two years ago, uh, which was a joint venture um, including uh, Versol, who's one of the largest owners of PV in the country, uh, we really set aside uh, set ourselves a goal of trying to do things differently, uh, and part of that was trying to be closer to load. Uh, so Bowman's our first project. Uh, and we really you know, drove around New South Wales and Queensland focusing on sites which were much closer to load than many of the other solar projects which were in the development pipeline. Uh, so this was on industrial land in the Bowman um, Industrial Park, uh, which is where the inland rail is going through, there's a canola factory right next door, there's uh, cargo teas across the road, uh, there are some other solar projects now being promoted in the same area. Uh, and it's, you know, literally on the outskirts of uh, Walker.
1: Mm. And that closer to load is actually quite important because we've seen over the last couple of months, the last year, in fact, a lot of issues for um, built and um, other other uh, wind and solar projects in the pipeline, which are being marked down quite heavily on the marginal loss factors, which is essentially um, a calculation made, which is influenced by the distance um, between a wind or a solar farm and um, and the capacity it's supposed to be meeting.
3: It's, we, we wish we'd had a crystal ball and we'd um, you know, known where the, you know, the draft um, MLFs would come out for 19 and 20 when we set off. Uh, I think we would say we had a pretty fair idea that you needed to be closer to load and also focus on system strength. Uh, so that's one of the reasons that we chose uh, the site next to the Wagganaw substation. Uh, you know, at the time we started developing, uh, Snowy 2.0 wasn't really even on the cards. Uh, let alone the the whole reinforcement from Tumut, Wagga to Barnaby. Um, now, for us looking into the future, uh, we believe anything around Wagga is going to be quite strategically located because of those reinforcements.
2: Simon, um, energy estate, as you you mentioned is a JV with Wu. I, I hope I'm not wrong in guessing that's where the capital comes from to some extent. If I look at your website, you've got about 11 people and you were uh, previously uh, uh, part of Norton's. Can you just describe a little bit about how Energy Estate came into being and uh, and uh, what its objectives are? Is it, is it an investment bank or is it a project developer? I mean, uh, what do you see as your skills?
3: Um- well, when I was sitting um, munching Easter eggs um, over the weekend uh, explaining what we do to someone, they said, oh, you sound a little bit like an, an old merchant bank. Uh, and there is uh, a ring to that. Uh, so we, we spun out, so Vincent Dwyer and I spun out of Norton Rose, where I had headed the energy team for 15 years, uh, this time last year. Uh, and so Energy Estate um, is effectively the, uh, is our business. Um, and Simon Corbell has joined us. Um, I can announce today that uh, Christian Krebs, who used to head up the structured finance team at NordLB, B, uh, he is joining us uh, soon. Uh, we have Luke Panchal, who used to head the EY transactions team. Uh, and It's really to be a full functioning advisory uh, for the energy sector, but we also do acceleration and Renew Estate is an example of our acceleration. Uh, so Renew Estate was my idea. Um, I sat down with Toby Rocks for, uh, from Beast Solutions uh, and then Versol came on board uh, back in 2017. Uh, and that's the sort of things we uh, are really looking to do. Um, along the other project which has been in the news is Walker. So that's the four gigawatt project up on the New England plateau where we've been working with the developer Mark Waring and we announced that we were coming on board to accelerate the project back in November. Uh, and for us, it's right across the sector. Um, people think I'm a renewables person. I'm actually a gas person. I spent most of my life in London working on gas projects, uh, gas power. Uh, and it's really about how do we, you know, as we, what, the name, what it says on the tin is how do we accelerate the transformation, both through doing strategic advisory. And we're very, very, very fortunate to have Simon Corbell on board. We don't want to ever lose um, the sight of, you know, we're here, this is a consumer-facing industry, we have to deliver low-cost affordable power, and we must make sure that we have the economic development um, that, we, that we can achieve.
2: I'm sure Simon's very well connected, uh, and perhaps we'll come back to Walker, but I just want to ask, uh, how's the forward uh, workbook looking? I mean, at the outset, Giles mentioned there's an inquiry uh, there's a sort of shortage of new projects right now. Uh, I guess a lot of us in the industry are trying to assess whether, you know, some barriers have been put up in terms of connection agreements, prices, uh, renewable certificate prices aren't as high as they were. Um, are, are we just in a holding pattern or, or from what you can see, do you, do you think, I mean, how would you describe industry conditions? <coughs>
3: Uh, I mean, I've been very fortunate over the last twenty-five years to work with all sorts of amazing people uh, globally, uh, and you've know, seen the ups and downs of very many different markets. Uh, you know, I moved here four years ago for life, not for work, uh, and I still believe that we're sitting in the lab. Uh, what we're doing here today now is so many other places are looking at, uh, and I see there's just a, a world of opportunities. Uh, They won't always be the same. Uh, In particular, I think there's an increasing and correct focus on dispatchability and storage right now. Um, I was quoted in the AFR this morning to say that the number of uh, vol hours uh, is scandalous, and I stick by that. Uh, We have to now focus on how do we dampen down vol, um, how do we bring in greater competition to the markets uh, through whether it's CSP, whether it's pump storage hydro, whether it's gas peakers, um, so I, I see that you know, what we were doing two years ago with pretty vanilla large-scale solar, uh, that's not the future. Um, the future will be far more integrated um, you know, and a broad range of different technologies.
1: If we can just get back to the um, the Bowman Solar Farm I and mean, a couple of interesting points there. One was the interest from Westpac um, who are using taking um, uh, some of the output to um, m- meet their um, target of 100% renewable, um, ele- renewable energy for their electricity supply, and also uh, Flow Power, who are sort of passing that on to a winemaker, and also um, snack brands, which uh, makes chisels, amongst other things. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the corporate market out there and how important that's going to be going forward. And I'm also interested in, in knowing the significance um, of the fact that the buyer of the solar farm, which you've bought... So so you landed these two contracts, and then you've actually sold the solar farm to Spark Infrastructure, who are basically one of the biggest network owners in the country. And, and that struck me as quite a remarkable development, where you've got the network owners actually starting to own um, some of the largest generators um, in the grid.
3: Uh, well, in my house, certainly uh, the only off taker that counts is uh, snack brands. Um, my children aren't so excited about, um, you know, a, a bank or uh, a wine company. Um, they will so, one day. Yes. Um, so, yeah. You know, if you look back a couple of years ago, uh, we were just at the beginnings of the corporate PPA market in Australia. Uh, you know, people were being dragged, kicking and screaming, looking over at what was being done in the US. Uh, WWF was doing a good job trying to spruce the market, uh, but it was it was going pretty slowly. Uh, you look forward. 2018 was was really the year, um, and. I've been involved in most of the corporate PPAs that have been written in Australia, uh, and that comes off the back of uh, some of the ones I did in Europe. Uh, what Westpac did was really look at it through a vision and values uh, prism as to what they wanted to achieve. Uh, and you know that's one of the reasons that, that we teamed up with them, and one of the reasons it worked as well with Spark, uh, this was more than just about a price or you know, meet, meeting um, you know, carbon commitments and the move to 100% renewables. It was what else could be done. And that's really then, I think, taking a leaf out of what we've seen in the ACT and, v- and the v which is I think corporates sometimes they miss the buying power they've got and how they can achieve far wider goals than just you know, uh, meeting their electricity or sustainability needs. So things such as the scholarships, um, the work, the community fund. The, we've got we've actually got a local jobs commitment uh, written into the PPA, uh, much more like you'd have with a state based tender, uh, and that's where I see the future, both here and globally. Is that you know if you're Apple, then you should be really looking at what you do around modern slavery when you write a corporate PPA. Um, there can be you know, there's a lot that can be achieved. Um, you know, when v- came out did anyone else really would think that Vestas would you know reopen factories in Australia you know 10 years after they closed them I don't think we thought that was possible Um, and that's why I mean you know I think clubbing together will also be the future if we get more of the corporates to club together and agree on the common goals they'd like to achieve.
2: I mean that said it's hard to model out a decent return for Spark I, I used to cover Spark quite extensively and I can't quite see myself that the return they're getting on this is the same as the return that they were getting on their uh, existing business, but uh, perhaps time will tell. I uh, well, I mean,
3: so I think for me, I look at it a slightly different way, and, and I look at the whole sector. Uh, and I think even when you look at someone like Shell or Petronas, who's just bought, bought CNI player in Singapore, th- the question for me is in the sector, from you know, wellhead to consumer. Do you want to best be in one part of the sector anymore? Is it sufficient just to be a, a TND operator or a distribution company operator? Or do you need to capture an increasing part of the value chain? Uh, and that's the way I look at what Spark are doing. This is effectively a diversification from regulated. And we know that regulated here and globally is not necessarily where it used to be. Um, you know, it won't always be... Uh, you know, a one-way bet. Uh, there will be increasing challenges um, on you and any regulated business. Well, uh, well I so agree with fi-
2: that, Simon. But at the, but at the same time, you know, I mean, as an speaking as a research analyst, I mean, you, 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 diversification is not and often is a very diversification. I think the uh, famous guy from Peter Lynch used to call it uh, in his book he wrote about thirty years ago. And I mean, if the return on the new project isn't as high as the return on the existing project. Uh, then maybe you can accept that in this case as a one-off experiment, you know, while you're putting your toe in the water and the investment is tiny relative to the totality of Spark. But in the end, every investment uh, has to uh, improve the return of the overall portfolio in the bigger scheme of things. Otherwise, you know, the the, the whole system breaks down, doesn't it? But anyway, I, I, I hear what you say.
3: Yeah, but but I think I think we probably have slightly divergent views in terms of you know will the returns on transmission distribution assets continue to go up or go down? Um, I believe that in a you know in a world where uh, electricity is even more populous than it was in the past, um, you know, you it's, there is certainly um, you know having non-reg income um, is uh, you know is not diversification.
1: And I'm just wondering if there's an, another broader issue here too, because it's interesting that you've got corporate customers um, taking directly from the solar farm or via some, a new intermediary like Flow Power, plus you've got the uh, network owner um, owning the um, generation assets. What's, what's, what's the broader implications for the current structure of the energy market, and particularly our focus on gen tailors, who traditionally have
3: supplied both the generation and the contracts to the big consumers and small consumers too? Well, this is where I where I start to come um, slightly radical, uh, and had the same debates uh, in Europe, which is when we liberalised this market, which you know is still a relatively recent uh, phenomenon uh, in Australia and globally. Uh, we had a you know a certain view of what the market and the energy markets look like. That's now changing, as typified by you know the uh, astronomical growth of rooftop in Australia. Uh, And I think we do, um, you know, it's behoven on all of us to sit there and say, are the structures right? Um, Is it a matter of splitting, you know, transmission and distribution? Why do the guys who own the smart wires not have the customers? Are we looking at the wrong through the wrong lens and applying competition concerns that come from effectively what's now almost a bygone era, Um, you know? We we face it in Europe. We're facing it in all sorts of markets. Uh, I I don't have an answer.
2: I think this is a really fundamental question, which I suppose in part through a very restricted uh, terms of reference the ESB is going to look at uh, with its uh, market structure uh, review that it's doing this year. But I I think myself the scale of the global transformation that is required in electricity uh, really... um, raises the issue of how much central planning is going to be required in that. I mean, when there's a war on, you don't leave it all to companies. Maybe you do these days in the United States, but historically, governments got involved in the war, you know, and they ran the whole thing for better or for worse. And private companies made a lot of money out of it. (laughs) I mean, uh, to me, it's like not quite a war on global warming, but it's not that far away from it. And the market structures that, I mean, we can see this in transmission planning. I mean we're still continuing to have a long debate about transmission planning when it seems to me that we, we need some more transmission to go to the point. I think Spark has got plenty more transmission, or Transquid has plenty of transmission opportunity investments. Anyway, I'd be interested in your thoughts, Simon.
3: Oh, I've spent my weekend um, between Easter eggs um, reading uh, the Western Victorian and rereading the Western Victorian um, PADR, um, and you know been involved the last few weeks with the uh, uh, PSCR for the um, uh, between Transgood and Powerlink for a second Q&I uh, and I, I totally you know concur I was very fortunate to be a member of their working group uh, for their ISP uh, and I think that one again really opened my eyes to say we have to move to much more central planning and from from being someone way on the other side of the fence saying oh look the industry was always sorted out I've definitely you know come you know, sitting in a different position now saying the industry's not collaborating we're not actually very good at uh, crea- creating the collaborative um, structures we need um, I don't disagree with Kerry Schott uh, in terms of anarchy um, and you know, in that situation we're just going to have to be forced to, to do things and in the same way well, I've been quite vocal about developers not working together to end up with the best connection options It's just daft, Um, I I don't like it personally uh, and I find it from a system point of view, we're overpaying, we're overburdening the system because people don't think there's the right incentives to collaborate. So they're just gonna have to be made to.
2: So just on that uh, point, uh, one of the AMC inquiries is into the uh, amount of information that has to be disclosed uh, by intending participants and there seems to be a suggestion that some Develop a project and then sell it to someone else at some point. And because they're going to sell it to someone else, they don't have to get to the market very much. Um, and there doesn't seem to be much disclosure uh, of of um, uh, companies that have got either office to connect or, let alone, connection agreements. Uh, what do you think of the um, um, AEMC process, or is
3: yeah? So I mean, I'm I'm am I'm a little disappointed about with myself because from about November last year I. Kept on telling everyone I was going to put a rule change in uh, around transparency. Um, and then sort of in February, I heard that this one was coming um, in terms of a, the, the consultation. Uh, yeah, I, I believe we have to move to a, a visible queuing system or, or something of that akin. Uh, it, you know, the idea that two developers competing for the same connection point can't even be forced to tell each other. Um, you know, and the, the poor uh, TNSP is just stuck in the middle. Again, it's just daft. It doesn't help us from an economics point of view. Wastes time and money uh, when what we're really trying to do is—you know—you you talked about the war. Um, you know, we could we could be in trouble here. We only need a couple more of these old coal-fired power stations to fall over, and we're short of capacity. Um, we need to work out how to replace the existing capacity as efficiently as possible. The more information we have, the more efficient we can become.
1: So how do you sort of view this when you're looking at um, a project like Walker, which as you said at the, um, near the start of the uh, podcast was um, four gigawatts, a mixture of wind, I think solar um, and various force of, forms of storage, I think sort of um, um, both pumped hydro and battery. So tell me, you, you've got a four gigawatt project there, what sort of things are you going to be looking at um, to prompt or to facilitate that level of investment? Um, you know, what sort of policies do you need? What sort of rule changes are you looking for? What sort of market needs to underpin that that sort of project?
3: Um, that's a, a great question, and uh, that so I, I first found out about Walker in about two, about two and uh, so August twenty sixteen. Uh, and I sort of bounced down the steps of a meeting saying I've heard about a two and a half gigawatt wind farm and thought it was, sounded fantastic. Uh, and man, how things have changed since then um, in that this was a wind farm which was really off the map at that stage. There was not a single other competing project from Armadale. Uh, really down until you hit um, Hills of Gold, the Nundal wind farm. There was no solar, there was nothing else. Uh, you look at that region today, it's now part of the nor- you know, northern New South Wales res. Uh, there are, a, you know, I wouldn't say a myriad, but there's a number of other projects in development. Uh, what has been good is the quality of the resource has been recognised. Uh, it is some of the best untapped wind uh, left in New South Wales. Uh, it has also got a very supportive community. It's a plateau rather than a ridge, uh, so it, it has uh, a different impact on the environment than effectively um, you know, along uh, a long visible ridgeline. Uh, and uh, it's now all about what is the right strategy to harness that resource, but at the same time twinning it with what's going on in the Hunter Valley and then what's going on in, around Bulleye Creek and Sapphire. Uh, and I think we are moving, um, you know, increasingly to much more system planning. The, the discussions we've been having with Transgrid and Powerlink uh, have been, you know, around that system planning. What should we facilitate rather than just what's on the books at the moment? Uh, and I think that's a really good step in the right direction. Um, when we're looking at, you know, a very available good solar resource up on Bulli Creek, we've already seen what's happened at Sapphire. And so the Sapphire Hub is part of effectively one. It was one of the key parts of the proposals, and then the Urala Hub, which facilitates the exploitation of this um, resource. But key for us is a way um, to do this, uh, what we'd call responsible development. Uh, so Vincent Dwyer, my partner, uh, he talks about uh, seagulls to a chip is one of the issues with the RES. Um, we've got to make sure that we don't look back and go, that we've just got you know a spoken wheel where we haven't thought about the transmission corridors. Uh, we have upset communities all over Australia where a res was plonked down on top of them. Uh, that's you know we're not perfect, but that's one of the things we're really trying to um, it's you know master planning. So we're talking about master planning of the res and master planning of Walker.
2: So so what's the timeline, Simon, uh, for, I guess, uh, this, these developments or for, for your development in, in particular? I mean, when, what are the key, one or two key milestones and, you know, when, when will you achieve them at the moment?
3: Uh, so the uh, preliminary environmental assessment for uh, the first stage of solar, which is uh, 700 megawatts together with the Uralla hub and a battery uh, has just been filed with uh, New South Wales DPE. So that was Monday last week. Uh, that was after uh, you know, spending time with uh, various uh, community groups, um, but you know, and so that's the, the first stage. And then the, we've had wind monitoring up on the first stage of wind, which is uh, a circa 700 megawatt wind wind farm, which is to the um, north uh, and east of Walka. Uh, that was looked to be the first stage of wind, uh, and then there's a second stage of wind, 700, which we call the West, um, or a much better name Ruby Ruby Hills Wind Farm. How could you not like Ruby Hills Wind Farm? Um, so that would be the next stage, and this is now working with uh, Transgrid uh, and then the other grid stakeholders uh, and the other projects in in that plateau to work out what is the best connection option. Looking at what what is available on lines 85 and 86, uh, and how the you know the project and the re, the res fits in with the potential second Q I
2: So it's it's still going to be a few years away before, uh, or at least a couple of years, you would imagine before you could even get started building it. I I guess it takes a, a while to work through those things, and you've got the new transmission from Queensland to New South Wales to fit in there as well.
3: Yes, yeah, so the first the first stage of the project, we're not looking to be dependent on uh, you know any um, you know major augmentation to Queensland. Uh, it's really you know utilizing what's um, available on the line. Uh, the other thing for us, uh, which is really critical, is uh, Dungowan Dam, and we have an MOU with uh, Tamworth Regional Council to look at effectively a uh, a shared pump storage hydro and water uh, water security. So Dungowan Dam is one of the main sources of water for Tamworth. Uh, this also, you know, whether it's Dungowan Dam or whether it's one of the other or several pump storage facilities um, you know, around the Hunter and around um, that, you know, um, helping replace Liddell, Bayswater, Araru, um, you know, Immediately you'll go, but what about Snowy 2.0? And I say, well, there's something big sitting between the Hunter and Snowy 2.0. Uh, it's called Sydney, um, and we really need to look at strategically locating pump storage hydro to the north of the load centre in a way where it will firm the flows coming down from you know, Walker, Sapphire, Queensland, and before they get to the two, the two 500s as they come the two ring mains.
2: As I keep saying, I grew up in Armidale, and you know I, it was very paranoid. On the one hand, you had Queenslanders uh, not very far away, and on the other hand, you had to be very careful because you regularly went through Tanworth, where you know the next person would be wearing a big hat and start playing country music or something. But anyway. Uh, we've, I've survived I've survived it all. I, look, Simon, uh, I, I'm sort of pinching some of Giles' time here, but I just wanted to ask your thoughts on one other rule, uh, proposed rule change that I think might affect the renewable, and you mentioned the gas industry, and, and that's the uh, uh, suggestion that there might be a European-style short-term ahead market, which would basically be, as I understand it, voluntary bids and offers the day before the actual physical market cha- change. Do, do you think that would be of uh, assistance to the industry?
3: Um, so yeah, I, I lived my life um, you know, uh, in the UK for many years. Um, our, you know, our pool, um, you know, I have I've fondly fond memories of the pool, but we ripped it over up over about seventy million pounds worth of market manipulation in the capacity markets, and we moved to NETA, uh, and then effectively, you know, uh, something which looks lot, a lot more like uh, what's in the Swiss, but without the capacity market. Uh, you know, uh, for better or worse. Yeah, uh, it has it has changed behaviour. Um, so I find it difficult to argue against short-term capacity markets in terms of uh, incentivising um, new entrants. Uh, you know, right now you wouldn't say that the energy-only market is necessarily incentivising um, new entrants to come in and build um, you know the capacity that's available when we meet it. Uh, so yeah, I uh, I think we need a number of different devices now. Uh, someone told me the other day that. Uh, In 2016 we had an $8 billion market and in 2018 we had a $20 billion market. Now maybe those numbers are wrong. Whatever the situation, you go, this is a time where we need action and we need more mechanisms to uh, create competition. I know I sound like a broken record.
1: No, that's okay. No, no, no. Um, look, just going back to Walker, you, you talked about putting in a, um, a DA um, for the first stage of the solar farm, 700 megawatts, and I
3: think you mentioned battery storage. Did you have a, um, a sizing for that battery storage yet? Um, so that so battery storage um, was put in at uh, 100 megawatt size, uh, which is the um, right now the uh, optimum size in New South Wales um, because if you go over that size, uh, you have uh, different planning requirements imposed on you okay and, and hours of storage uh 200 megawatt hours
1: 200 megawatt hours two hours of storage yeah, yeah.
2: And uh, this might to... be a time giles to mention that you know uh as, as as you published today we've been looking at uh in the usa uh there's been a whole series of studies about looking at uh solar plus battery i call it a bs system battery plus storage uh, be a system uh, competing with gas, uh, firstly in the um, peaking market, where the economics are reasonably okay, even in the US, or, although we've only seen a few of them happening, but we are seeing them beating out gas peakers. And now they're even starting to look into the mid-merit gas uh, competing competition, where mid-merit uh, could be defined as gas plants that ha- have a capacity factor of between, say, 30 and 50%. And the argument it is that if you get the uh, investment tax credit, which you can get on batteries, but you can't get in Australia, there's no support for batteries in Australia whatsoever, um, uh, That um, um, and you get a decent amount of ancillary services revenue, that's revenue for fast starts and uh, and frequency management and all of which is becoming very competitive, then uh, then you can make or just about make um, a, a BS system competitive even with um, a mid-merit gas plant, and most of the gas plants in Australia are mid-merit. Sorry, didn't put that burst in.
3: And that and that assumes um, US gas prices. If you if you run Australian gas prices, uh, let alone a high-case gas price, uh, now, OK, our, our construction, our costs for solar haven't yet got down to where we are in the US, but we're getting closer and closer. Uh, yeah, it's not that far away that you can see a wind plus battery a wind, solar plus battery, or solar plus battery, completing with you know the gas plants, mid merit plants here. I think we are competitive pretty much already. Um, if you look at the prices that someone like CWP has talked about that they could get to from Sapphire, uh, and then you look at um, where coal's sitting today, you know. And I all came from a history of going well. Australia will be one of the last places to ever move away from coal because power was traditionally you know in the 20s. They're not running at the twenties anymore. They're running at much, much higher prices. Um, so they're now increasingly vulnerable to effectively, you know, this new technology.
1: Hmm. And it was interesting that um, Tesla put in a submission um, to one of um, AIMO's. Um, Reports and they were talking about the need to sort of think about battery storage in terms of um, not just sort of one to two hours, but also four hours challenging exactly that mid-merit market that um, that David is talking about sort of, you know, encompassing the whole peaks because they thought that battery storage could probably do a cheaper and more efficient job in that market too. So really pointing towards a change there. Look, you did actually mention solar costs. I'm a little bit intrigued as to what the result from Bowman Solar Farm was. I think um, David might have done the brief calculation on the top of his head, worked out the amount of revenue that um, Spark, was expecting from annual revenue from the various contracts and dividing it um, by the output and came up with a figure something like $55 a megawatt hour. Is that in sort of the ballpark uh, figure for some of the contracts or the expected return?
3: Um, yeah, I'd say that's, that's, a, that's a good ballpark. Uh, it's certainly, you know, going back to your point about the, the RET, uh, I don't look at anything uh, through a, a RET prism. Um, I've never been a, a great fan of subsidies um, I'm much more of a commodities person um, so I uh, you know I'm happy to see effectively the back of the rent or people looking at value uh, and it's all about you know what price you can compete on uh, one of the things we did with flow uh, we were really the first project to sit down with flow and say what do your customers want rather than say I want a 10-year contract because it makes me more bankable we said What can you sell? And they said, well, we can sell some black for five years, we can sell some bundled for five years, we can do a bit of seven, and we can do quite a bit at sort of 10 to 11 end to rent. So that's the way our contract was, uh, flow was structured. Um, So, really, you know, and that would be, you know, so some of it's priced much closer off the curves, some of it is effectively priced as, you know, uh, what you'd expect to see in the long term markets.
1: I guess the baseline is that at fifty five dollars a megawatt out, roughly, um, that's enough to make some money out of a solar farm these days.
2: Well, that's that's my point, Giles. It's it's only just enough.
1: <laughs> oh, I was going to ask Simon, is it just enough, Simon, or have you walked off if you um, now
3: bought another um, couple of packets of G-Zor's? Um Yeah. So, I, um, s- sadly, for many people in the market, I'm not retiring anytime soon. Um, you know, it's um, you know we're we're here to stay. Um, you know, I was speaking with uh, Ivor Cato, the CEO of RES recently. Um, And both of us were quite passionate about, um, you know, uh, what we see as our calling, which is to deliver low-cost pricing. Um, This is not an industry where we should be happy with getting high prices. Um, We have to deliver low-cost. Otherwise, we're under attack. I mean, I've been through all of the the fits which are under attack in Czech Republic and Spain and Bulgaria. Um, You know, a nice high price contract is really not that nice. Um, and we've seen it here when people have signed things, which are then seem to be out of the market. Uh, you have to, um, you know, end up with contracts which reflect, um, you know, the lowest possible price you can afford to deliver. Um, <laughs>
1: Yeah, we should probably be wrapping up the podcast pretty soon. But I just want to ask one just general question, and it's an interesting one. As we're going into the election, we're talking about policies, and basically the coalition is unmoved. The um, Labor has a fifty percent policy, which is sort of branded as sort of reckless and the economy wrecking um, by some. And the Greens, of course, go much further and that "Let's have a hundred percent renewables policy." How quickly do you think that this transition can happen, and what sort of policies should we be um, aiming for, or do we just need a road map and a plan?
3: Uh, well, I think one of the things which is often forgotten, and it's very relevant in Australia, is that this development is not going on in Sydney, Melbourne, or Brisbane. It's going on in rural Australia. Uh, so I do find it surprising, considering the amount of income and investment um, that is going into rural Australia, um, that we still have you know uh, you know some political parties um, you know opposing this, even though when it's clearly beneficial to their constituents. Um, so, I think that is an interesting question for us as to how do we, um, you know, we have seen in other parts of the world, effectively the traditional farmers' parties uh, go, this is fantastic, this is my constituents, um, and I want to support this. Uh, I do believe, as, you know, uh, as much as it uh, you know, pains me as a Kiwi, um, that Australia you know, is genuinely lucky again, and, you know, it isn't, this is going to be a technology led uh, revolution here. Um, I just cannot see any way in which it will be stopped now uh, with high high coal and high gas prices.
2: I, I think we need some policy myself. Uh, personally, I think it goes back to central control again. We need policy to make sure that, uh, uh, you know, that because prices, that, that new generation actually gets into the system at the required rate. It's got to be forced into the system. But anyway, uh, as Giles said, we're out of time. Uh, like... It's not for me to thank the sponsors, Giles, but...
1: uh, But you can uh, if you want. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to thank the sponsors then, Solaray Energy and What Watchers, um, for your long and continuous support. So thank you very much. And look, um, thanks, David, and thank you, Simon, um, for coming on this podcast and telling us about um, Bowman and Walker and um, some of the other many pressing issues we face in the energy at the market. And um, good luck with um, your
3: ongoing ventures great um thanks i'll go off to my glass of mcguigan and my chisels <laughs>
1: <laughs> nothing like sampling the products of the customers okay thank you very much and david um thank you very much thanks to all the listeners and bye for now
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solar Ray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Watt Watches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.